Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one emotional page of Talmud a day. Today's page, Aruvin 3, poses a bit of a conundrum. We've barely begun learning about the concept of Eruv, and the rabbis tell us that in this discussion, which relies so heavily on precise measurements, our basic units for measuring distance, well, they aren't really always uniform. There's the basic unit of ama or a cubit, but sometimes it's measured with the fingers spread wide open, and sometimes with the fingers held tightly together. And the rabbis say, I'll read this great sentence in Hebrew, halalu suhakot vehalalu atzuvot. The former are happy cubits, while the latter are sad cubits. This idea that some units of distance, that some places, that some geographic locations are inherently happy and some inherently sad struck me with full force when I read truly one of the most astonishing books I've read in a very long time, Never Alone, Prison, Politics, and My People. It was co-written by Nathan Sharansky, famous refusenik, former head of the Jewish agency, Israeli politician, hero of the Jewish people, and our guest today, Gil Troy, one of our finest historians and writers. Gil, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm a big fan of your work. And vice versa. I want to start with the author's note. You know, it's almost cliche to say, but I sat down expecting to read a chapter or two and then stayed up until two in the morning, kind of devouring the whole thing. So I even read the author's note. I, I read all the way into the back matter. And, and something you wrote on the author's note really struck me. I want to read this. Natan was born into communist dictatorship in a town called Stalino in 1948. Gil was born into American freedom in Queens, New York during John F. Kennedy's presidency. Most of the years Natan was surviving in prison, Gill was studying history at Harvard. Despite our vastly different backgrounds, we come to similar conclusions. Israeli Jews and diaspora Jews live different realities, but most of us want to continue our journey together. So here's my question. Look, the, the, the job of a historian is hard enough, right, to try and get into periods into the heads of people, you know, that lived a long time ago that aren't you. And here you are writing about someone who, you know, whose formative years were spent to keep in theme with today's Talmud page in the saddest of all sad places, sort of the epitome of sad places, the gulag. So first of all, how do you do that as a writer, as a historian? How do you kind of get into the mindset? It's a great question, partially because I, I'm a historian. I write alone. I don't play in the sandbox with anybody else. And you're right, I mostly write about dead people. Or even when I write about live presidents, I try to keep them at a certain distance. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting across from either the Jewish agency desk or the dining room table of Nikon Sharansky, one of the great heroes of our time, one of my personal heroes. And I had to do kind of, there were two parts of the process. One is I had to get over the heroic thing. I had to get over, we had to have the ability to fight um, lovingly, respectfully. But we fought over every word and, every, and, and over every nuance and, every, and, and of every tone, uh, total statement in the book. And yet we never had an ideological disagreement. And the second part of it was that I come from happy land. I mean, America, the United States of America, especially growing up, all the challenges we had in the 1970s, uh, but in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we, we ultimately were the spoiled brats of Jewish history, as Rand Weevil here famously said. And precisely at that time, there were 3 million people, like the time, suffering, and suffering in the most profound way. And we have different senses of humor. 
My sense of humor is less subtle. He has that ironic European-Russian thing going on. And so it took a while, to, and, and it was really also this tremendous privilege. I had to somehow convey his voice and his ideas um, while also bringing in my ideas. So it was not always an easy process, but it was a, a, a tremendous privilege and, and, and a lot of fun, too. So here's one thing that strikes me as, as having made this book probably even harder to write and even more pleasurable to read, because it really does revolve uh, around the lines of, of today's Duff's insight around happy places and sad places. But the interesting thing is that they're not always what you would expect. For example, early on in the book, you read about Naughton's horrible years in the gulag and in Soviet prisons, and yet his resilience and his belief that he's, as a member of the Jewish people, he's never alone, make that place not altogether sad. And yet, much later in life, as he is a respected Israeli politician and Jewish communal leader, and he arrives, say, on American college campuses where people literally throw pie in his face because he represents the occupation government of Israel, you get a sense that this great, big, hallowed hall of learning, this this tremendous American campus, which is supposed to be this great, happy place of learning, is much sadder than, than you think. Talk to me a little bit about that tension. Absolutely. So first of all, that man has suffered more in seconds in his life than I've suffered in my entire lifetime, right? What he endured in the gulag, what he endured from day to day, without knowing that there'd be an end, without knowing where he would end up uh, in Israel, uh, is extraordinary. And you're right, that amidst that very sad, profoundly tragic, terrifying place, he kept a sense of humor. And he has one of his great lines, he says, yeah, you know, being a Jew in the gulag is easy. I don't have to pray. I don't have a hundred different mitzvah commandments to do every day. All I have to do is get up and survive and just say no. And then all of a sudden, there's the double challenge. One, he wins an election in Israel in, as a free man in a free democracy. And he's in the Knesset and he has to be compromising all the time. And that's no fun. And that's really hard. But then it gets even harder when he goes to what's really my happy place. Because look at me. I'm a professor. I'm a case of arrested development. I got to university and loved it so much I never left. And that place, that sacred space, and you've written about this so eloquently, all of a sudden has now become sullied because rather than being a center of critical thought, of liberalism, of openness, it becomes a center of closed-mindedness, of a new kind of totalitarianism, of what Natan calls a new double think. He sees it in people's eyes where they think one thing but say something else. And a lot of it revolves around Israel. He says, most recently, he says, first, they canceled Israel, and now they're canceling America. And to come to that place, to come to Brown University, and not only have people denounce the occupation, but when he comes and he says, let's talk, because they're saying, Israel apartheid. And he says, look, I know Nelson Mandela. I met with him. I know what apartheid is. I was an observer in the South African elections. Let's talk about this. They say, no, we don't talk. We don't talk to you. And that inability to have nuance that inability to bring in any joy into their lives makes these places that should be happy places profoundly sad places for someone who endured all these sad places and was always able to find that silver lining. There is enough in, in this book uh, to merit about probably 30 or 40 hours, if not days, of big discussions. There's stuff about you know Soviet politics and the Refusnik movement. There's stuff about 
you know, campuses, about Israeli politics and government, about all a host of topics that really deserve our serious, both contemporary and historical analyses. But I want to kind of leave you with, with one final question. It seems to me that one of the most beautiful things the rabbis tell us in today's page is that even though we could think that a cubit is a cubit, a measurement is a measurement, a distance is a distance, it's really up to us. Because if we hold our fingers apart, wide open, the world is a little bit bigger, a little bit brighter, a little bit sunnier. And if we hold them very tightly closed, almost like a fist, the world is a bit sadder, a bit more closed off. And so the book ends with the probably the most difficult discussion that it raises, and it's not the Soviets and it's not politics. It's the relationship between Israel and American Jews today. And it's very much, I think, about choosing whether to be closed off or open-minded. What is your prescription there? Are we doing well? Are we headed for, God forbid, a sort of divorce? What should we do to keep this relationship as thriving as you and Nathan Sharansky and I, and I hope a lot of other listeners want it to be? So we point out both the forces that are leading toward a convergence and the forces that are leading to a divergence. And part of the, the main force keeping us together is that sense, the book title, Never Alone. For 75 years, we've been obsessed with Never Again. But when you, and we, of course, have to remember the Holocaust and, and keep that sacred uh, place in, in our lives. But we also have to remember there's something affirmative of belonging to the Jewish people, that if you're part of this amazing network, you're never alone. And that's what keeps us together. But one of the concepts we tried to introduce is that American Jews are increasingly Isaiah. And Israeli Jews are increasingly Davidian. Isaiahs focus on peace, universal justice, tzedek, 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 justice, justice shall you pursue, like the prophet Isaiah, as he's remembered in American Jewry. Because if you read all of Isaiah, you see there are a lot of hard parts, too. King David is the man of sovereignty, who has to make some tough decisions. He has to kill the lion, he has to kill Goliath, he has to, he has to fight. Of course, there are other parts in the book where we see that he's also a psalmist and a harpist and all that. So we have a tendency sometimes to emphasize what divides us. And the fundamental challenge is this, that we are optimists because of the amazing history that we've had over millennia. And we're also optimists, and this is the essential message of the book, because we're activists. That the key to being an optimist is not waiting, and it's like those old Jewish jokes about God sending people to help and saying, I'm sending you, and they said, well, but you didn't take the advantage. You have to take advantage of the opportunities. And so the message of the book is, yeah, we've got trouble. And in fact, if we can name the trouble and name the differences, then we're halfway there to solving them or at least living with them. Unity doesn't require uniformity, and optimism should never lead to passivity. In fact, pessimism leads to passivity. And our optimism, and this is the example of Natan Sharansky surviving in the Gulag, it's the example of what, all the work that you do uh, and that we're trying to do to, to bring light and liberal ideas back to the American campus, and openness, is to be optimistic activists. Because if you don't wake up every morning thinking, you know what, with that amazing article you wrote, you can change the world. With that book, you might be able to move the needle, then you're not going to do it. And so that's part of the message, never alone. You've got this amazing history and this amazing network of people behind you, but also don't be passive. That's pessimism. Be active, that's optimism. And that will bring us from the sad place that, of course, we're writing during COVID and we're writing during this terrible period. We can go from the sad to the happy because we're together and because we're optimistic and we have a mission. And that mission is not only saving ourselves, but also saving the world. Amen to that, Giltroy. Thank you so much for being our guest today, and I hope everyone listening out there will rush and read this important, entertaining, edifying, life-changing book. 
Well, thank you so much. This has been Take One, a production of Tablet Magazine. If you enjoy this show, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we'll be releasing new episodes, Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafiomi. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Paul Ruest. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone, or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we've made your day a little bit more Talmudic, and we'll see you again soon.